Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jude Rogers. Music education in the UK is in a perilous place. The 2021 Institute of Fiscal Studies annual report revealed a huge cut to the real-term spending per pupil on the subject in the last decade. 9%, the largest cut in 40 years. Last week, one of the biggest musicians' unions, the ISM, published Music, a Subject in Peril, flagging falling teacher recruitment numbers, big drops in the uptake of the subject in GCSE and A-level, and changes in government policy that have expedited the decline. A new national plan for music education is also imminent, although without meaningful consultation with those actually working in the field, the ISM report claims. Some may argue, of course, that music is a second-class subject, all about a group of kids tooting their recorders noisily in class, less important than science and technology, less essential to career prospects, more a luxury than a necessity. But music education has also been proved to promote effective group work, social cohesion, and the magical powers of individual creativity. And of course, it's enjoyable. So how do we make sure that it survives? To find out why music matters, today I'm speaking to Chrissy Kinsella, Chief Executive of the award-winning London Music Fund, an independent charity that aims to transform underserved communities by enabling children to access high-quality music education. Hi, Chrissy, and welcome to The Bunker. Hi, thanks so much for having me. First of all, why do you think people consider music a second-class subject, you know, when we're looking at the majority of attention being directed at STEM subjects? I think sometimes it's that music is considered a subject only worthy of people with privilege, almost. I think it's a number of things. I think you're right. Historically, classical music in particular has been seen to be something that's a bit elitist and, you know, full of rich, old, white people. The argument, of course, that it will always be like that if we don't change it. But the concept that music education and classical music in particular can be elitist is probably one thing but also it's seen as a hobby I think you know music is is a hobby and it's not something to be taken seriously it's not something that leads to a career and we're frequently told as you very eloquently outlined in your introduction that you know science technology English and maths are the the subjects that we all need to study in order to be able to have viable careers that dreadful phrase that came up particularly during the pandemic about Mm. about viable jobs and viable careers also that idea of a viable career is quite crazy as you know the British economy has been so driven by the arts in many respects you know especially in the last 20 years absolutely I mean music the music industry in the UK is worth something like five million pounds I think that's correct I'll probably have to double check that I think it's billion isn't it it's massive yeah right actually and it's enormous amount of money that comes into the country and the exports as well you know the the amount of money that is exported and and the artists that we export around the world and you you know you you very rightly said at the beginning that music education is not just about learning a musical instrument it's about all of the other benefits that come with that it is very difficult to argue the case for music when so many people at the top of the ladder seem to think it is just a bit of an add-on so you are the chief executive of the london music fund which was set up in 2011 Um, and as i said in my intro focusing on getting music education to underserved communities how does this work Yeah, so we work in partnership with the 32 London boroughs and each borough is led by a music hub which is funded by the government through the DfE and the Arts Council. And we work in partnership with those boroughs running two main programmes really, a scholarship programme for primary school children from low 
low-income families who've shown potential in music and can't afford to even carry on beyond that very early stage. And also we fund partnerships, which are wider collaborations between schools and music services and professional arts organisations. And recently we started working with YouTube Music in partnership on something called Amplify London, which is working with smaller grassroots projects in local communities. So things like music technology and music production. And the aim of those projects is to really try to help to diversify the music industry in due course. And, and, you know, YouTube are really keen on funding young people from underrepresented backgrounds into the music industry. Yeah, it's quite interesting that sometimes it's business that see this before government. What are the biggest challenges you have met when you talk to people about the importance of music education, aside from it just being seen as a hobby? Yeah, I think it's very, very difficult sometimes to try to argue the case for music when so many organisations and charities are fighting for funding. And somebody once said to me, well, why should I give money to a music education charity when I need to give money to the food bank down the road? And that's a very difficult argument to have because I cannot begin to suggest that you should fund music education over child poverty. It's like comparing a carrot to an elephant. They're two very, very different things. And I think people look at it in a very black and white way like that. And they say, well, I can't, you know, we can't fund everything. And if we need to fund X, Y and Z, why should we fund A, B and C at the same time? My argument for that is everything has its place, particularly children from low-income families. If they don't have access to music, they're missing out on a huge amount of enjoyment and joy and creativity that their more well-off peers are having as part of their daily lives. And that is another example of just pure inequality, really. And so you can't really compare it with, you know, child poverty and frontline delivery services. But at the same time, you can still argue that it is fundamentally important for children's development. Now, I know you're a musician yourself, you know, you're a singer, you've got a first class degree from the Trinity College of Music. You know, I'm sure you've seen firsthand how the music world can be elitist. Given your, you know, experience at that time, has that experience pushed you to try and open up opportunities for musical expression by, you know, a wider diversity of people. I'm not saying necessarily that your experience was one thing, but um, as somebody who grew up learning classical music myself, I I know firsthand how, you know, it can be this world that can be quite off-putting to a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, I came from a a state school background and really auditioned for music college at the last minute as a kind of secondary thought. Wasn't expecting to go or to get in at all. So I, when I did go, I absolutely, I loved it and I had the most wonderful time, but it is a very different world and it can be a very, it can be very, very intimidating world. And I think what I found was just feeling able to set foot in places like the Royal Opera House or the Wigmore Hall or, you know, other big buildings like this. Sometimes it can be very intimidating just to be in those places and just to feel like you belong in those places. And I think One of the most important things that we've done through the Music Fund recently, which is not part of our fundamental programming at all, but it's a bit of an add-on in that we run playing days and workshops for children on our scholarship programme. And we've started holding them at places like the Royal College of Music and the Royal Academy of Music. We had our 10th anniversary gala recently at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. And just taking these children and their families into these buildings and putting them on stage and just making them feel, whether they're aware of it or not, actually, that they belong in these buildings. And that's a door that you can walk through. In maybe 10 years time, one of those children might think, I'm going to audition at the Royal College of Music because I've been there before and I know what it's like. And also we have, we often have ticket offers for children for them to go and hear concerts. And so many of those 
have taken them to places that they would never ordinarily have gone to. We were lucky enough to take 30 children to English National Opera last year to see HMS Pinafore, which was absolutely amazing. I mean, none of them had been to the opera before. And Stuart and his team at ENO are doing a huge amount to, to open up their offer for, for children and young people. But I think it, the, the feeling of belonging, I think, is a really important one. And children from public school backgrounds do have so much more confidence in those kind of spaces than children from less privileged backgrounds, I think. Absolutely. Now, I am a child of the late 20th century. I'm from South Wales and I was very lucky to grow up um, in a county which had a county youth orchestra. I went from the age of eight up to 18 playing in Saturday morning orchestras, Friday night orchestras. We went to the Edinburgh Festival. We played concerts in London. We were all state school kids. There was money put into it. I had free lessons from peripatetic teachers. It was fantastic. It's gave me confidence and made me the person I am beyond, you know, the experiences it introduced me to as a young musician. And actually, I don't make music anymore myself, but it's contributed so much to my social life and my sense of self and things like that. Nowadays, you know, those formative experiences are much less common for young people. I also interviewed last year the composer Hannah Peel, who has won multiple awards. She writes music for films. She writes orchestral works. She is a Radio 3 presenter. She had a very similar experience to me. And to see all that taken away from her area. What has changed? You know, it, is it just governmental attitudes, do you think? Or is it something wider in society? Gosh, um, I mean, it really is very difficult. I think there are there have been so many political changes in the last 20 years that the landscape in terms of local government changed so substantially. And music services, which are the local authority run provision, were historically funded through the DfE directly by something called the Standards Fund, which I think may have been a Labour initiative. And it was brought in to do exactly what you said, to cover all music education for children in state schools uh, across England and Wales. And I think it's just gradually over the years been slowly eradicated and slowly moved further and further down the political agenda. In 2008, the DfE investment in music education was at a peak of £110 million, which was incredible. But then it was cut by the coalition government to 90000 a year, then 75000 a year. And they even tried to cut it further to 60000 And this is for the entire country. I think this may just be England. But they realised that was too much and they put it back up to 75000 But it's remained at 75000 for about the last eight years, which, of course, in real terms, is a massive decline. We're about to, as you say, have the new National Plan for Music Education. There's an awful lot to be positive about that. You know, we have a government who are prepared to invest in a national plan. They do see the importance of music education, but the problem is, and always will be funding. So in terms of schools getting instruments, schools getting staff? Yeah, and just it's the training of teachers as well, as you say, which is a big problem. Initial teacher education on its own is having a lack of funding problem anyway. Music teachers are not getting enough training and enough CPD. Music teachers in primary school, you know, God, wouldn't it be amazing if every primary school had a dedicated music specialist, a music mm. teacher, but they don't. And it's often left to primary school teachers to teach music as part of the curriculum. And they have something like three hours training as part of their entire PGCE. And most of them are terrified to teach music because they don't understand it and they don't know how to do it. And so it kind of just keeps filtering down further and further. We do have this whole class teaching program at primary school where every child is meant to be able to have the opportunity to learn a musical instrument for at least, well, it used to be a year. It's now, sadly, a minimum of one term. Most music services and primary schools within the state system do offer more than that, but it is still only 
a drop in the ocean compared to what really should be happening, which is every child doing music every day as part of their primary school life, even if it's just singing and, and school choirs and, you know, that kind of thing. I did actually just going off on a slight tangent, I was lucky enough to adjudicate the Bromley Youth Music Service primary school choir competition a few weeks ago. And it was absolutely delightful. It was just such a wonderful day, particularly because singing was so sidelined during, during the pandemic. But every child should be singing in primary school every single day. So talking about that lovely experience of adjudicating the choirs, you know, seeing these young people singing together and how it promotes, you know, connection between each other is such a big thing. Last year, I made a series for BBC Radio 4 called A Life in Music. And in the first episode, I looked at how children's behaviour can be changed by music making. It was so fascinating to find out things like how music can help children develop better responses to delayed gratification, how it makes them boost their confidence. I have a seven-year-old who has started playing the piano and just his self-expression is changing. You know, obviously, you've worked with lots of children. What effect has music had on some of the children you work with that has surprised you? Oh gosh, I mean the one thing that comes back more often than anything else is the the immense confidence and sense of pride that they have, particularly when they're chosen for our scholarship programme. And just the change, as you say, the change in behaviour, the change in attitude, they hold themselves you know, differently. They're immensely proud to be good at something. And I particularly love what you said about delayed gratification. And I think in this world where we're so used to getting what we want immediately nowadays, this is one of the things that children have to really work harder to be good at. And they also know that it's okay to make mistakes. I think that's one of the things we get from our workshops when we mm. ever get feedback from the children and, and some of the most powerful comments are often it's okay to be wrong or it's okay, or there's no such thing as being wrong but also it's okay to make a mistake and you know as you say everything about working together and just the I think yeah the confidence the confidence that children get from making music and the joy of it so often we spend a huge amount of time as music educators trying to justify the subject and talking about increased academic attainment and, and increased you know it's good for maths and it's brilliant for this and it's actually Actually, we should just be celebrating music for the joy of music. Absolutely. And that's why it's so striking when the government or government officials make statements to the contrary. Back in January this year, when we were at the height of the Omicron variant of COVID-19, the chairman of Ofqual, which is the Office of Qualifications and Examinations Regulation, Ian Baucom, he proposed exceptional emergency timetable changes due to the staff shortages because of COVID, one of which included suspending specialist subjects like music, you know, the idea of music as a specialism, you know, again, is this idea of it being separate and privileged in some ways. And you were very vocal, I noticed, in your anger about this on Twitter. Do you think there needs to be a kind of concerted campaign to push why music education is needed now more than ever post-pandemic, no, I say post-pandemic, you know, we're not obviously post-pandemic, but coming out of COVID and coming out of lockdowns, especially when children have had two years of not being able to make music together? Absolutely. It's like you say, more now than ever, we need to have this feeling of social cohesion and being together and creating something wonderful together. And what better than music and singing and music for children to do that? It's the difficulty that I find with, with government is that they seem to say that they understand and they seem to, they say the right things and they understand that music is important, music education is important. Look at any private school and you will see how incredibly well funded they are for that provision. It's just somehow convincing them to, to write the check. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Everything starts with it. Tell us a little bit more about the National Plan for Music Education. So there was a plan for music education when the coalition government came in in 2010, but this is a new national plan. How is it being put together? And, you know, are you doing anything as an organisation to support it or help it along? Yeah, so the national plan is actually um, the panel. They've put together an expert panel, which includes a number of music educators from lots of different backgrounds, including schools, but music services, performers, the UK music industry. So there are there are a wide vo- num- variety of voices represented on the panel. And it is actually being chaired by our, our chair of trustees, actually, Veronica Wadley, Baroness Fleet. The programmes that we run at the London Music Fund were always intended to hopefully be replicable around the country. You know, it's the kind of programmes that could be picked up by other music hubs and other cities. So there may be some work in in for, for us in, in developing our work in terms of saying, look, this is how we're trying to solve part of this problem in London. Perhaps other cities could look at doing this. If somebody once said to me, not that long ago, you know, why does your charity need to exist? Surely music education should be funded through central government and every child should do it at school. And I said, well, of course, of course they should. And I completely agree with you. And in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to exist, but we do. And while we do, these are the solutions that we're finding to this problem. And if it if it's a case of, you know, trying to, to look at philanthropic and corporate funding and trusts and foundations to support these programmes, then that's, that's certainly what we have to do and I think sometimes we have a tendency to just bang the drum and say you know everything's awful it should be funded by central government and it's the disaster when it's not and I just think sometimes we need to look at where we are and focus on some of the positives that we do have which are we do have a national plan you know there are an awful lot of countries around the world that don't have anything like that we can always look backwards and say well it was so much better 30 years ago than it is now and of course it was but but we are where we are now and I think that Absolutely, we keep we need to keep banging the drum for want of a better musical metaphor for more funding. But also, we need to be pragmatic and we say, right, what what can we do with where we are right now? Is there any concerted work being done in the area of encouraging young people to carry on studying music? I say this because I know that the EBAC qualification does not include the arts. You know, they are not the core subjects. Uh, A member of my own family, my brother, who is a music teacher at a further education level, has seen a cut of students to his 16 to 18, you know, FE courses by, you know, 50% in the last 10 years. There seems to be something deeper going on with the idea of taking this this subject forward as uh, something that could enable a career. You know, music isn't seen as degree level, for instance, in the same way as history or English literature even. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking, actually. And I I think that there are an awful lot of organisations like ISM, as you mentioned, doing huge work in trying to lobby government. I think part of the problem is that there's such a lack of joined up thinking sometimes from central government. On the one hand, they say that we should be funding every child to have music education at you know, we should be funding this whole class teaching program so every child has the opportunity to learn an instrument. But on the other hand, they're taking away funding at higher education and further education level. So the only children and young people who will be able to go and study music at higher level are those who come from more privileged backgrounds. So it's kind of, I, I think Alison Balsam said something brilliantly recently, and I'm going to try and paraphrase it and probably quite badly, but I think she said, there's no point giving at one end and taking away at the other, which is exactly that. You know, if you're not going to be able to follow through with a musical education without having to worry about taking out, you know, massive amounts of loans or, or, or just, you know, having to rely on, constantly rely on charitable donations, then it's very, very difficult 
it, it's just putting so many barriers in place because why would you why would you try you, why you'd be exhausted wouldn't you you'd just be <laughs> constantly having to try to find money to pay for your tuition and then we have this kind of drip feeding of the message that actually it's not really an important subject and it's not a viable career and you know you can't go and you won't make a lot of money from it you know rather than this is an amazing subject it's an incredibly viable subject it leads to all of these amazing careers within the music industry and the creative arts let's value it for what for what it stands for i completely agree a question to finish if you could become secretary of state for education right now somebody just walked up to you said right Chrissy it's yours what did you do immediately and what would you plan to do for the future I know it's a big question and it's probably your dream (laughs) gosh I think I would immediately reinvest in the sing up program which was the national singing program that took place from oh I can't remember 2005 maybe and sing up now runs amazing amazingly they're an independent um, organization they run completely independently and they still do a huge amount of work but I would Make sure that every single child in every single primary school in the country was singing every day. I would invest in a primary school music specialist in every primary school. And I would make sure that children who wanted to learn a musical instrument were able to do so, if not free, but at certainly hugely reduced costs. That sounds like a plan. We'll sign you up right now. I don't know where the money's going to come from, though. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine the the magic money tree. (laughs) Apparently, it has existed in the past. Maybe it can again. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chrissy. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. Give us excitable reviews on your favourite podcast app and spread the word by telling your friends. You can also support The Bunker Daily on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how making a small contribution gets you lots of lovely merchandise, plus early editions of the podcast and more. Thanks so much for listening and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jude Rogers. The producers were Jelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey, your friendly neighbourhood former music student. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.